Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. In the series called Loving Our City. Jesus' entire life is dedicated to loving others, and as his followers, there is little that is more important than for us to learn how we can love our city and invite people into Jesus' mission. Last week, we uh, talked about how God teaches us that none of us are here by accident. Living in this community at Quest, doing the job you do, living in the neighborhood you do, each and every one of us is here for a good reason, a good God reason, that he has put you here to seek shalom, that, that Hebrew word that means thriving and wholeness and godly purpose in people's lives every single day. We touched last week on the bedrock of prayer and doing things in word and deed. Before we go into more depth on word and deed, today we want to look at an important illustration of Jesus. Uh, And as we do, we're going to borrow the structure for this message from a a pastor and author named J.D. Greer that we personalize for ourselves today, so I want to give him some credit. As we continue to talk about how God wants us to love our city, allow me to start with a series of some questions. It's kind of like a word association here, though, so just just have some fun with this. What comes to mind when I say the word vegan? Is that what comes to mind? I, I couldn't resist this, this next one. And, and uh, please understand, if you're vegan, I have a lot of great friends who are vegan. I, I totally respect that choice, but can we just have a little fun with it? That, that's, that, that was just, I could not, not put that up. What comes to mind when we say CrossFit? Is that something like that? Well, what about an Alabama fan? That, that, you know, I think all of us as Buckeye fans like the toilet paper on the side of that box, don't we? It's just, you know, we just, that's, that's, that's what we think, right? What about a NASCAR fan? What comes to mind? Maybe that? We have some absolute diehard NASCAR fans, and I tried to find a funny picture of one of you to put up there, but none of you posted a really funny NASCAR picture on your Facebook, so I couldn't steal it. What about when you think of the word Texan, what comes to mind? Jeremy, does somebody say Jeremy Shelley? <laughs> yeah. Doesn't he kind of look similar? Yeah, there's a little bit of... What comes to mind when I say the word Christian? If you ask 10 people, you'd probably get varying answers. Some people would say, yes, I am one. Others would say, yes, but I'm not like... Others would say, at some point I was a Christian, I I prayed a prayer, I got baptized, I completed catechism or confirmation. Some would say they've always been a Christian. Can I just let you in on a historical fact? The early followers of Jesus didn't call themselves Christians. In fact, the original term Christian was a derogatory term used to talk about them as little weak Christs. So what did the first Christians actually call themselves? They called themselves disciples. Somebody's got it down and a follower of Jesus. Well, so what difference does that make? Well, here's the difference. I think in our culture... Identifying with the label Christian often obscures the fact that a lot of people who call themselves Christians are not actually disciples of Jesus, are not actually following 
Jesus. The term disciple, I think, is much clearer. And I'm not saying don't use the term Christian, but it's critical that we define that term in the context of what it means to be a disciple and to follow Jesus. Last week we talked about the great commandment and and the question that comes out of that, who is your neighbor? Instead of answering that question from Jesus' famous story, we went to to Jeremiah 29 last week. But today, we're going to actually look at Jesus' answer to that question. We're going to start in Luke 10, verse 25, and it says this. And behold, a lawyer... Now, you've got to understand, this lawyer, he's a religious lawyer. He's a, he's a religious legal expert. Stood up to put, him to, to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So let's just pause there a second. I want you to notice two things. This legal expert is asking the most important and most basic question of all religious questions. How can I know I'm following God and right with God and going to be saved and go to heaven? Second, he isn't sincere. He's testing Jesus. We saw last week uh, the same thing. A different legal expert asked Jesus the same question, and Jesus answered him. But this time, Jesus flips the question back on him. Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Just simple. Do this, and you will live. Sounds easy, right? But a big truth in life is that simple is rarely easy. Just do this, Jesus says. Make God your highest passion in life, the one you think of first and foremost, the the one that you are more intent on pleasing than anything or anyone else. And when your mind is idle, it should naturally turn towards God and delighting in Him and love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Simple. And yet, wow, is that a lifetime of challenging growth for every single one of us. And I want, you, I want to point out a couple dilemmas that we're, we're dealing with this, in this interaction that are important for us to understand. Why does Jesus need to command that you love God and love your neighbor? I mean, think about it. If you love something, you don't have to be commanded to do that much, do you, right? I love to kiss my wife. I love to spend time with my kids. I love Asian gourmet, spicy Thai curry beef, and you don't have to command me to do any of those things. On the other hand... I hate pecans. They want to make me gag. You might be able to command me to eat them, but I will never love them. I've learned to love a lot of things in my life that I once hated, but pecans, they are a lifelong hatred for me. So therein lies a dilemma. There's a second dilemma that we need to understand as well in this. This man's primary concern is for his own soul. And Jesus says, just just do these commands and you'll be saved. Which leads us, and as well as many atheists rightly point out, to say that if you are commanded to love and by doing so you gain heaven, then you aren't really loving at all. Rather, you're simply operating out of self-interest. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest famous preachers of the 19th century, tells a story, and he says it this way. He says, once upon a time there was a king who ruled supreme over everything. One day a poor gardener while harvesting his field, came upon a carrot that was so big, his first joyful thought was, this carrot is so big, it's only fit for a king. So he took the carrot, and he presented it to the king as a gift, saying, my lord, this is the greatest carrot I have ever grown or will ever grow. Therefore, 
I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect. And the king, discerning the amazing beauty of this man's heart, was moved by the sincere love of the man's heart. And he said, okay, so before you leave, just wait a second. And he says to the servant, you clearly are a good steward of the earth, so I want to give you all of my lands that surround your little plot of land so that you can garden them all. And the gardener went home amazed and and rejoicing. Uh, Now, there was at that time also a nobleman in the king's court who overheard all this, and he said to himself, wow, if that's what you get for a carrot, what will the king give me for something better? So the next day, the nobleman came before the king, leading the most handsome white stallion you've ever seen. And he bowed down low before the king, and he said, My lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or will ever breed. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect. But the king, discerning his heart as well, simply said, Thank you, took the horse, and dismissed the nobleman. The king noticed the nobleman was clearly clearly perplexed. So he went on to say, Let me explain. The gardener was giving me a carrot, but you were giving yourself a horse. See, if I'm serving God to get to heaven, then I'm not really serving and loving God at all. I'm just simply serving myself. This self-serving approach to religion is the second dilemma. And we need, to, we need to read this story of Jesus through the lens of those two dilemmas. Why does Jesus even need to command that we love like that? And, so, and how can we truly ever love and follow God in an authentic way rather than through self-interest? So the text goes on. It says, But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? See, the difficulty of just do that is making the lawyer uncomfortable. He's trying to limit the scope of what the Bible says, what Jesus says, to make it manageable, comfortable, controllable, in terms that he can justify himself and he can feel in control. And and isn't it true that we often do that as well with what God says to us? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And and when he says down, that's literal. This this 15-mile journey drops 3,300 feet in elevation through these narrow passages. And then Jesus goes on, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. In other words, the guy was almost on his last breath. It was just a matter of time. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. We tend to give this priest a really hard time, thinking, oh, he's just more interested in making it to Jericho in time for some dessert. He likes his ice cream more. But, but Jesus' audience would have actually had compassion for this priest. See, first, the Jericho road was so dangerous that in that day it was called the Pass of Blood. You didn't travel alone if you could help it. You ensured that you were off it before nightfall, and you kept moving so you wouldn't make yourself more vulnerable. And second, the priest was either returning home from a long stint away from his family, serving at the temple in Jerusalem, or possibly returning home from having gone through a purification process in Jerusalem so that he could fulfill his priestly duties in his home area. And according to Jewish law, if you touched a dead man, you had to go through another seven-day purification process. 
which would either mean he was going to be away from home and away from the family business, which he'd already been away from for a long time, or possibly letting all the needs of those he was to minister to in his area go unmet for another seven days. Either way, it was massively inconvenient and could be quite expensive to the priest in terms of time, money, lost productivity, and family stress. And if the man was basically almost dead already or was dead already, well, someone else would come along for whom it wouldn't cost so much. So why risk all of that? Why expose yourself to great danger by staying on the path longer or maybe having to track its dangerous steps one more time in the next week or so? See, the text goes on. So likewise, a Levite, understand Levites were kind of, the easiest way to describe it is they're kind of like JV priests, right? When, you come, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now think about it. This Levite may have had the similar thoughts to the priest. In fact, the story leaves it open that this Levite may have possibly even seen the priest walk by. So he might have just been going doing what the guy he looked up to did. The guy he was trying to be like. Then it goes on. But a Samaritan as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. You may remember the Samaritans were sworn enemies of the Jews. The Jews saw the Samaritans as as half-Jew, half-Gentile collaborators of their Assyrian conquerors from centuries earlier. And the Samaritans also mixed pagan practices into their worship, so they they were heretics as well, religiously. Violence and war erupted regularly between the two groups over the centuries. In fact, about 100 years before Jesus, the Samaritans decided with sided with the enemies of Israel in a war, and the Jews defeated Samaria and destroyed the Samaritans' temple just to spite them. To the Samaritans, the Jews were hated because they were self-righteous bigots in their minds. So the Samaritans regularly robbed the Jews on this road that we're talking about from Jerusalem to Jericho. And just if, actually just a few years before Jesus, the Samaritans also snuck into Jerusalem the night before Passover and spread dead body parts of people all over the temple, desecrating it, effectively putting an end to the second biggest Jewish celebration and worship experience of the year. So you've got to think, these are really die-hard, hating each other street gangs from L.A., or, or maybe another analogy would be, this is the difference between the, the Shia and Sunni conflicts that happen in our world today. This was an extended family blood feud of epic proportions over politics and religion. The story goes on. The Samaritan went to him, and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out, a, 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 out two denarii, which, understand, that's like a, a really good two days' wages, okay? And gave them the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Did you get that? This Samaritan in Jewish territory gave a Jewish innkeeper a blank check to care for this guy. So Jesus concludes the story. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the expert in the religious law said, the one who showed him mercy. This Jewish scholar can't even say the word Samaritan. He just says, the one. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. See, Jesus 
shows us in the story what it means to love our neighbor and why we do it, which is actually something that very few of us get when we read this story. And then how do we love? The what, the why, and the how. So first, what it means to love our neighbors. I know this might be a little confusing, but we can follow it on the screen. I'm going to ask three more questions about this, what it means to follow our Jesus, the who, the when, and the how much. The answer to the who of what it means to love our neighbor is anyone. Who? Anyone we see in need. The fact that Jesus uses a Samaritan and a Jew tells us Jesus is saying, your neighbor is the person you barely know or you don't know at all. And and, and it's the one who protests against your political and social views. It's the people you feel you uh, that are causing the pain and suffering and disappointment in your life. It's the boss who's taken advantage of you. It's the Muslims fleeing their countries and coming to the U.S. It's the illegal Immigrant. Now, I gotta be careful when I say those latter two. I'm not making a statement about what the government should do. The government has a different role and a different set of questions to ask and to answer. I'm talking about you and me. When I see an illegal immigrant, I see a person made in the image of God, and there is absolutely no question how I am to relate to them especially if they are in sin. I am to put myself in their path to love them and help them and hopefully see them be saved and redeemed by Jesus. Jesus is saying anybody, everybody is your neighbor, no exceptions. So the when of what it means to love your neighbor, when do we help? And Jesus' answer is whenever you see the need. As wise people, we tend to come up with all sorts of excuses for why we don't help someone in need. The Samaritan would have had a boatload of of excuses. I mean, the man was a Jew. He was a cruel racist towards the Samaritans. He might have thought, well, this is what happens when you treat other people like this. You're just reaping what your sin deserves. And you and your people brought this on yourself. And yet the Samaritan reaches out in mercy anyway. In the 1700s, the famous preacher Jonathan Edwards wrote a book called The Duty of Charity. And in it, he lists the most common excuses Christians give for not helping those in need. And Edwards' observations, I think, are timeless. His excuse, number one, is we only help people when they're in dire need. And Edwards' answer is that violates the principle of loving your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because you come to your aid and long before your circumstances are, di- are dire. I don't wait till I'm about to die to help myself. I help myself when the slightest discomfort begins to happen. Right? Excuse number two is they brought the trouble on themselves. Edwards answers, much of the misery in our lives is a result of our sin and bad decisions, and the rest of it is a result of other people's sins and sin collectively in the world. But but Christ came to relieve our trouble anyway. Shouldn't we love like Jesus? Maybe look at it this way. Liberals and conservatives have different explanations for why the poor are poor and why kids in poorer communities continue to struggle in their schools and education, things like that. The left always says it's because of systemic evil, racism, oppression, and greed. The system, they argue, is rigged to support those in power. 
Conservatives say, well, well, there may be a little bit of that, but, but no, it's really a responsibility and a hard work thing. They have all the same opportunities of education and work, and if they would only learn to work hard instead of being dependent on the system like the liberals make it so easy for them to be dependent, they are, they'll have the same opportunity to succeed. So don't teach the kids to make excuses. Don't teach them to blame the system. Don't teach them to blame those who are successful. But but both liberals and conservatives agree on one thing. It's not entirely the kid's fault, is it? Think of it like this. The fact that I was born into a family that loved me, that pushed me, that got me a good that made me get a good education, pushed me to work hard and be responsible even in the little things and believed in me, all of that had absolutely nothing to do with me and my effort. It's not like God rewarded me as opposed to someone else. All of that is a gift of circumstances or a gift of my parents having received a gift of God's grace that changed their lives in some way. The kids born in difficult families or worse circumstances didn't ask to be born there. Therefore, we ought to do something to help by engaging and not isolate ourselves. This is one of the reasons we do our Project 29-7 tutoring initiative where we, where we go to a school in the area and we tutor kids. Our tutors made such a huge difference this year. I wanted you to just hear what the head of the tutoring program from the school's perspective said about that. Just turn your attention to the screens. We are so thankful for the tutors that come each week from Quest Church. Not only do they provide our students with that extra reading support, they provide that loving, compassionate relationship that our students need. Each week they look forward to Lunch Bunch and they ask me daily, is it time for Lunch Bunch? We are so grateful for each and every hand that we have here helping our students. They've done a great job and I got to see some of the, some of the students' responses as to what they loved. And every single one of the students just said, the thing that made the difference was how much they cared about me. How much they love me. And they just all talked consistently about how much they love to look forward to seeing the person show up. Uh, one of my favorite ones said it this way. They said, my favorite day of the entire school year was when I met Mr. Joel. <laughs> now think about that. The favorite day of the entire school year? Not Christmas break. Not fall break. Not the recesses. Not all the other fun stuff. Not the fact that they, they learned to read better and they felt more confident. It was the day they met Mr. Joel made all the difference. I hope that many more of you will consider taking a lunch period once a week in the fall to help us serve and expand this ministry. Now, all of our discussion against the excuses that we've made doesn't remove the fact that we should be wise in how we do what we do. But here's the point. We have to do something. We can't just pass on by. The next question to understand what Jesus' story is trying to teach us is the how much question. How, how much do we love our neighbor? And Jesus' answer is love your neighbor in a way that you share the weight of their burden. Think about it. The Samaritan takes on this guy's burden at real personal great cost, both real and even the potential possibility of great costs that never even emerged. There's a huge risk. Edwards' uh, third excuse identified why Christian people sometimes excuse themselves from engaging and helping those in need is, he says this, he says, it's always, I have a lot of problems of my own. 
I can barely make ends meet myself. I can't afford to help the person in need. And Edward's answer and Jesus' answer to how much is that you get involved in someone else's burden until you share that burden, the weight of it. You feel it. There's no magic number, no clear-cut threshold for how much is enough. How much money should I give to God's work and other people? Uh, Enough so that it becomes a burden to you. C.S. Lewis uh, was known to say about this, the only safe rule for when it comes to giving is that you give more than you think you can spare until it pains you, until you feel it, until their burden becomes your burden. Some of you give quite a bit in terms of dollars, amounts, but you give, very, you give it at very little personal cost to you, right? Jesus is painting a different picture here of what generosity and love look like. We live in one of the most privileged places in the entire world. Jesus is talking to us. Now, others of you give a lot of money, and you do pay a price for it. You see others going on nice vacations and getting new cars and going to new houses, newer houses, eating, eating out more, going to concerts that you would love to go to and wish you could enjoy, but you don't go to those things because there isn't enough left after what you've given to do those things. You give a lot of money, but for some of you, you don't give very much of yourself to others. Jesus in Matthew 23 addresses that when he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint, dill, and cumin. Think about this. These guys not only tithe their money, they took the time to tithe their spice racks. That's like radical. That's die hard. And Jesus goes on and says, But you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You give money, but you don't give yourself personally to love your neighborhood, neighbor and helping people personally carry the burdens that they're carrying around you. Jesus finishes saying, these you ought to have done. Jesus clearly says you should tithe without neglecting the others, without neglecting the relational purpose for it, to be ready, willing, and actively engaged in helping carry in a very personal, relational way, friendship way, other people's burdens, lifting them up in sacrificial ways. And frankly, often that will hurt. Often that will feel like a burden, and it will feel like stress in our lives because we love. See, the weightiest Part of the law is loving your neighbor as yourself. And if you want to evaluate how well you're doing on that, ask yourself the questions. How much of your resources and time are are poured out to lift others up, to share in the burden others are facing? The next question, maybe the most important to understanding what Jesus is saying here, is why we love our neighbors, why we even love our city. And this is where Jesus throws this masterful curveball you don't see coming, and many of us don't recognize even when we read this story. If you remember, the question started at the beginning with this learned leader asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But if you know anything about Jesus' teaching and Jesus' life, you know the whole point of Jesus' coming is because you can never do enough to save yourself. We as humans always fall short So Jesus came to save us. Why 
is Jesus putting an interesting twist in the story that we, we, we tend to miss? And, and how, how is he putting that in there? Well, let, let's ask this question. Why have the Samaritan be the hero in the story? Why not say the priest and the Levite, they just walked on, and then along came a really good Jew, someone the legal expert, the religious expert can readily identify with. See, from how we tend to read and interpret this story, Jesus didn't need the Samaritan to make his point. So why did Jesus use the Samaritan? Here's why. What if the person we're supposed to identify with is not the priest, is not the Levite, and is not the Good Samaritan? What if instead... We are to identify with the man beaten and bloodied, lying on the side of the road, fearing he isn't going to make it in life. And what if someone who had every reason to hate us and be our enemy, someone very unlike us, had chosen to put himself in danger so he could help us? What if the Good Samaritan is really Jesus And what Jesus is really asking this religious legal expert is, what if you were bleeding to death alone on the road and your only hope was a free act of grace from an enemy who didn't owe you a single thing? If you had been rescued like that, then what would your life look like then? See, Jesus isn't giving the lawyer or you and I a new rule that puts all this pressure for us to perform on as much as he's making us aware of a new reality. When we see the reality of life rightly, when we recognize that God has every right to see us as his enemy because of how we blame him, We rail against him for stuff that is the fault of our own sin or the fault of other people's sin in our life. When we recognize that God has every right to see us as an enemy rebelling against him, but instead he gives us radical grace. He bears our burden. He writes a blank check to care for us. Then, When we embrace that, something changes in our hearts. We see reality differently. We become radical givers of grace, joyfully, willingly giving our lives to love others, even our enemies. How many of you remember the Charleston shooting a couple years ago and that happened on Sundays. Dylan Roof sat through a 45-minute Bible study on a Wednesday evening in a black church in Charleston and got up and gunned everyone down, killing nine and wounding three others there. It was a racially motivated, horrible terrorist act. And yet, if you followed that, you might recall that at the sentencing of Roof, many of the victims' families got up and they spoke both of the anger and the anguish as well as offered forgiveness, offered to visit Roof in prison, to care for him and to care for his family. Jesus is the Good Samaritan. We don't love our neighbors to get saved ourselves. We love our neighbors because we've been so loved by God. 
We are not loving to earn heaven. We are loving because heaven has been given to us. Let me leave you with a couple of practical thoughts for how we could begin to apply this in our life. First, living like this requires courage. Fear was one of the primary deterrents of both the priest and the Levite. In the book Next Door as it is in Heaven, the authors talk about how fear keeps us from loving our neighbor. One of the authors shares a personal story about how he bought into what the typical American idea of home is. He says, our home is our castle. It's our personal space that ought not be intruded on. We, uh, he talks about having people over to his home on a regular basis, but it was almost always out of our convenience. He says that we chose who would come over. We were choosing people we liked, and the people who came over were a benefit to our family. And he goes on to say, and then one right day I realized... But one of the assumptions I was living life, life with was that I assumed the greatest need of my family was safety. And then I all of a sudden realized that what Jesus is saying is the greatest need of my family is to experience God's love and to love and serve others like Jesus did. In his case, his family went on to foster children. He, stopped, he talks about how they'd always been afraid of, of fostering and, and the effect it would have on the family. And, and we all know there are legitimate questions in there, aren't there? Living with courage means we can't dismiss legitimate questions. We can't just deny the Jericho Road dangers. They went on to foster. And he notes in retrospect, he says, providing care for these children ended up being the single best thing he had ever done for his own kids. How they learned God uses hospitality to shape and form us. Now, it may not be fostering kids for you. I love how several of our families in Quest have adopted neighborhood kids from families where there's some struggles going on and they regularly bring them into the home and take them along on family events with them and treat them like family. Or it may be like one of the people at Quest who got involved in the life of a child to provide some additional support and now is caring for the entire family along with their small group and along with Quest Care's support. Or, or over the years, over the years we see those kinds of relationships making such a tremendous difference in people's lives. I love it. I got to sit this last week and talk with someone who told me about how their relationships with their neighbors, they, they built them to the point where there's such trust and a caring friendship that they talk with them about their marriage and family problems and they get to be involved in praying for them and encouraging them and trying to help them because of the depth of friendship that they've been able to build intentionally with them. It may be something completely different for you, but Jesus has not called you to pursue safety but to pursue his mission for your life and your kids. If you pursue safety, you will cut yourself off from mission and you will pay a negative price in your life and your faith. So there's a second clear application from this text, and it's, it's, it's the application of margin, not having the margin in our lives to actually get involved. Think about it. Read this whole story of the Good Samaritan from the perspective of margin. The priests and the Levites had all these excuses for why they were too busy to help, and they were good excuses. They were engaged in doing God's work. There was family excuses. There was business that needed them tons of legitimate good needs. For some of us, the problem is not the compassion of our heart. 
The problem is our schedule is way too packed. We don't have room to fit anything else in. In Leviticus 19 is this interesting passage that talks in the Old Testament about, about love your neighbor as yourself. And, and God gives this strange command that, that the people should not harvest the corners of their field. In other words, if you drop an apple or a stalk of wheat, uh, uh, you're not to pick it up and you're not to harvest the, the corners of your field. for those. You're supposed to leave those plants for other people. Why? Because when the poor come along, they get the apples from the corners of the corner trees and they pick the ones that fell up off the ground. They get the wheat from the edges of your field, and they get the stuff that fell to the ground. Ah, but see, in our culture, a good business person says, let's squeeze every last ounce out of our production that we can into our profit margin. And God says, no, leave margin in your life for you to give. See, all of us need to be ruthless about our schedules and our budgets. Otherwise, we will have no margin left to respond to what Jesus is asking us to respond to today or even give. I want to encourage you to audit your life and to learn to say no to more things so that you have time and margin to be on mission with Jesus, to respond and love your neighbors. Let's take a parenting and family schedule example, just, just for an example. Here's what I want you to hear, parents. And, and every one of you, whether you have kids or not, this same kind of thinking applies to every area of your life as well. There's so much pressure as parents to ensure your children get the best. One of the huge struggles we have as parents, and for all of us in life, is when does the pursuit of the best interfere with the essential in life? That line is going to be different for different people. There are some things, looking back on my life, I would change in the pace of, that we kept when we were raising our children. But, but one of the things I really, really valued about that time, even though the pace was so hectic sometimes, was the wonderful opportunities it gave me to get to know and become friends with so many other parents. And God, God allowed those relationships, those friendships, to have positive impact for his kingdom in some people's lives. But, but I've also seen families where we get our schedules so busy and so packed trying to give our children the best that we can only come to church once every six weeks and our kids never have the energy to really push past the awkwardness and the difficulty that we have to push past to develop really good relationships in children's ministry or youth ministry and break through to wonderful friendships that help support us in our faith. And when our kids go off to college, they fall away from their faith and those same parents begin to wonder what happened. And often the answer is they spent so much time trying to pack in the best of the non-essential activities in life so that there was no margin left for the essential. An imbalance in our priorities as people and as parents often comes down to our beliefs about where we think opportunity comes from. What makes our children's lives happy and fulfilled? Do we believe that having the best education, the best coaches, the best opportunities and teams to succeed and extracurricular activities that help us go to the highest levels possible is where our kids' opportunities come from? Or do we believe God brings our opportunities to us? Do we believe that happiness and fulfillment comes from having those opportunities and having success in those areas of our lives? Or does fulfillment come from discovering God's love for us and learning to pass that love on to other people regardless 
of what we're doing? Do we believe that fulfillment comes from those activities or discovering and being involved in God's mission to love our neighbor and encourage people to know God's love and follow him? See, fulfillment, whatever measure of happiness that comes along with a fulfilling life is centered in sharing God's love and experiencing those moments of delight Those rewarding moments where we get to see the fruit of deep relationships that have resulted in some of the people we've shared with experiencing and accepting God's love and how beautiful of a change that brings to relationships. Margin. Having the margin to experience God's love and be about the mission of sharing God's love is the essential. To have that, we need to say no to some really good things so that we can be involved with loving our neighbors like Jesus invites us to and we teach our kids the essential in life. I believe almost all of us believe that Jesus can make a difference in our neighborhoods. If we buy into that belief that God is already at work in our communities, let's just more intentionally join him there. It's no accident that you live here, even if you're going to only be here temporarily. So let's go into our neighborhoods and let's love people. Let's carry people's burdens. Let's watch God show up because patiently as we carry burdens over time, we will one day get to see that moment God shows up and the fulfilling joy of seeing freedom and purpose and life abundant begin to be experienced by people we have learned to love so well and care about so much. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, I confess and stand before you and just, just, just confess that it is so easy. It is so easy to focus on the wrong things to begin to trust that opportunities come by only by our hard work. And Lord, we push ourselves, we push our kids sometimes too hard with that. And Lord, we miss the most important. It's so easy for us to, to respond to life as I'm sure this religious leader was responding when Jesus said, just go do it. And it just puts this weight and pressure on us to perform. And, and yet, you aren't asking us to identify with the Good Samaritan. You're asking us to identify with the person who's been so amazingly loved, so undeservingly loved. Lord, I pray as we continue to worship for just a few moments here that, that for each of us here who need to be reassured of that love, your spirit would come to us right now. You would lift the weight of the burden we sometimes feel to try to be good enough to be good people. And you would come and let us encounter your presence and your spirit coming to us right now in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.